One, two. Please sit down. Please have a seat. Cheers. All right, grab your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're at this morning. Um, if you don't know who I am, my name is Obed. I'm one of the leaders here, um, and you are at King's Cross Church, and we are a church that is all about um, being a family on mission with Jesus. That is our goal, and we've been in existence for almost five years now. We'll be celebrating, yes, yes, you can make some noise for that. Um, well, we're going to be celebrating our fifth year anniversary, um, March 8th, I believe. Fifth. Is it March 5th? Thanks, Caitlin. <laughs> our communications director, everyone. So actually, yeah, exactly. Um, yes, we'll be celebrating our fifth anniversary then, and it's just it's wild to think that we've been in existence for five years here in this city. And it's also crazy to think that, like, you know, it's not as if we reach five years and, like, we're done and we cease, I mean, it cease to exist. That could happen, but it's not. I hope it doesn't. Um, but anyway, it's crazy. Um, and we've just been a simple church opening a God's word and doing our best to understand it and live according to God's word. That's all we've been doing. Um, nothing crazy or creative or anything like that. Okay, so you are, uh, do have your Bibles, I hope you do, Hebrews chapter 10. We've been in a series um, in the book of Hebrews, um, and yeah, we've been having a well of a time, haven't we? It's been, it's been fascinating. This week we're in chapter 10, first 18 verses of chapter 10. And as always, as is our custom in our effort to honor God's word, may you please stand for the reading of it. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through to 18 reads, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the Lord. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, 
a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sins, of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Wow, this is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time. (sighs) You are so gracious. So God, as we have gathered with a united desire to encounter you, God, I pray that you would have your way. And I pray that as we um, spend time now observing and reflecting on who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, as we come and behold Christ, may we come to know just how incredibly captivating he is. May you stir in our hearts a passion, a passion for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a seat. Animal sacrifice. Don't YouTube it. You might see some things that will make you lightheaded and pass out, but animal sacrifice is obviously a foreign practice for many of us. And as I was thinking of the whole idea of animal sacrifices not really being a thing, um, we as modern San Diegans are very much aware of, I started to think maybe that's not the case. Every time you enjoy a steak, every time you enjoy ribs, piece of chicken, chicken wings, whatever meat you like, every time you enjoy um, some sort of meat, um, just think maybe an animal may have been sacrificed for your enjoyment. Sorry. But that's a reality we don't often think about because we are so far removed from the whole idea of sacrifices and slaughtering. Animal sacrifices may be a foreign practice for many of us. It may seem weird, but for the people of Israel, it was a habitual practice woven into their culture. Animal sacrifice was a common practice within the context of the ancient Near East. But it had a totally different meaning and significance for the people of Israel. Unlike their ancient neighbors, when the Israelites sacrificed animals, they were not dealing with an angry 
volatile God, but they were dealing with a God of justice and grace. Israel were God's chosen people, but like all other people groups, they were sinful and rebellious. And so, to deal with Israel's sin, um, what God did was he took an existing practice, okay, that was familiar, that everyone was doing and other people groups were doing. He took an existing practice of sacrificing animals, and what he did was he transformed the meaning. For the Israelites... Cutting an animal's throat and watching its blood drain from its body was a vivid symbol of the devastating results of their sin and selfishness. However, the animal's death was not just a reminder of the tragic consequences of sin, but the animal's death and the animal's life was also offered as a symbolic substitute. How are you guys doing? You all right? Yeah? It's a bit heavy. It's a bit gory. But we need to go here because God's word does, all right? Um, the Bible project says this. If sin vandalizes God's world with death and pain, then God has every right to make people face the just consequences. But God loves his creation and does not want to kill, so, kill them, so the animal's life is symbolically offered as a ransom payment that would cover them. And so this substitute, so to speak, is not offered by humans hoping to appease a volatile and angry God it reminded the Israelites of the serious nature of the severity and consequences of sin. But ultimately, these sacrifices showed the Israelites how much God wanted to stay and remain faithful to the covenant relationship he had with them. It was an expression of God's faithfulness to them. And so when you're going through your Bible reading plan for the year, and you get to Leviticus, okay? And it starts to describe all of this sacrificial system and everything like that. Our tendency is to think, man, like this was intense. And it was intense, but we mustn't view animal sacrifices as a way that God as something God instituted so that they could appease him and kind of um, um, prevent him from getting angry. It was out of God's love and grace that he instituted these animal sacrifices. But as helpful as these animal sacrifices were, they were imperfect. And they came with many problems. Um, George Guthrie says, as with the old covenant tabernacle, the Lord's sacrificial system can only be seen as an imperfect copy of what God intimately 
had in mind um, since it contained elements that had a degree of ineffectiveness. And so this Sunday, what we're going to do from our passage this morning um, is look at the sacrificial system. And as we do, we'll understand this, that we'll understand that, yes, it was something God instituted um, as an expression of his faithfulness to them, but it also came with problems. And we'll look at what the solution to those problems are. You guys ready to dig deep? But you don't have any choice. Of course, you're going to nod your head. Let's go. And so first, we're going to look at the problem of sacrifices. The problem of sacrifices. Look at verse 1. It says, For since the law um, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. First thing first. What is the law? Um, When we think about the law, okay, um, we think about the Ten Commandments, you know, the you shall not, um, the tablets of stone God gave to Moses in the midst of a thick clouds and thunder and lightning and all of that. But in this verse, the law does not necessarily refer just to the Ten Commandments, but refers to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Um, The ritual of animal sacrifices is described here as what? A shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. What does this mean? It means that these rituals, okay, were simply signposts to something better. They were a representation of the real thing. Because the law is a mere shadow, verse 1 also states that it can never make perfect those who draw near. The kind of perfection being discussed here um, is not perfection as in lack of flaws, okay? But it's perfection that is associated with being accepted by God. In view of this, to say that the law can never make perfect those who draw near is another way of saying that animal sacrifices were never enough to give people access to God and make them acceptable in his sight. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, um, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. In other words, if the law was sufficient to make perfect those who draw near then there would be no need for repeated sacrifices. Okay? I have a car. Most of you have a car. If I have to take my car to the same mechanic every week to fix the same problem, okay, um, it's, it's, a, it's fair to say, right, that this mechanic is not doing his job. It's fair to say that he has not succeeded in fixing the problem. He's just trying to make more money from me, okay? Nasty, dishonest mechanic, okay? If I have to keep going, there's a problem there. In a similar way, because animal sacrifices had to be done over and over again, was a fair indication that it had failed to solve the problem of sin. 
verse 3 and verse 4. Look at it. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sacrifices mostly reminded people of their sins because the blood of animals was unable to take away sins. The term take away sins here isn't talking about the complete removal of sins um, that makes someone perfect, but it's really talking about the removal of the burden sin placed on a person. Thomas Wright helps us here. He says, um, they, that is the sacrifices, couldn't restore sinful human beings to an actual condition in which their consciences had been rinsed clean, enabling them to stand boldly and gladly in the presence of God. The animal sacrifices, the law required, were not able to create in the Israelites a clean conscience that enabled them to stand boldly and gladly in the presence of God. None of them could. Only the high priest could access God's presence, and he was only allowed to access God's presence once a year. And even when he accessed the Holy of Holies, he went in trembling and nervous because anything could happen. To us, the practice of animal sacrifices is just gory, brutal, fill in the blank. But for the Israelites, it was a powerful symbol of God's justice and grace. Even though the yearly sacrificing of animals may have been an expression of God's justice and grace, it was not without flaws. It had problems. And as we've seen, the problem with sacrifices was that they could never make perfect those who draw near to God and take away sins. In other words, these sacrifices, even though God had instituted them, they were unable to take away the agonizing guilt of sinful people and enable them to boldly and gladly stand in the presence of God. Put simply, animal sacrifices could never give people access to God and make them acceptable in his eyes. This was the problem with the sacrifices. And so the question is, if animal sacrifices were not enough, what was? What was the solution to the problem of sacrifices? If there was a solution, what is it? Was it what is the solution to this dilemma and the problem of sacrifices? And so we've looked at the problem of sacrifices. Next, we'll look at the solution for the problem of sacrifices. Look at verse 5, 6, and 7. It says, Consequently, I love that. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. Now, if you look at verses 8 and 9, um, this is 8 and 9 is basically a summary of what we've just read in 5 to 7. And so, so far, what has happened, if you've been with us, is that we've spent 15 weeks, 15 weeks, 
okay, studying the book of Hebrews. And you've probably noticed, as we've studied and read Hebrews, that the author of Hebrews, we don't know who he is, all right? Um, the author of Hebrews has been quoting a lot of content from the Old Testament. And he's been doing so because of the audience, because of the people he's writing to. He's writing to mostly Jews who had converted to Christianity. And he's also quoting and using a lot of Old Testament literature so that he can show that Jesus and the new covenant is better. And so in the verses we just read, what's happening is that the author of Hebrews... Um, he's quoting from the Old Testament, Psalm 40. And what's interesting about this quotation, and you may have noticed it, if you aren't, I'm going to show you, is that according to the author of Hebrew, Jesus is the author of Psalm 40. The section of Psalm 40 he quoted. He attributes these words to Jesus even though they were written many years before he was born. Okay, Raymond Brown says the author of Hebrews puts the eloquent words of Psalm 40 into the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ at his incarnation. Okay, and so look at verse 5, beginning of it. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then the author quotes, not all, but several paragraphs from Psalm 40. What is this showing us? This is an example of how the most valuable and sacred book in human history is all about Jesus. Jesus is everywhere in the Bible. He absolutely is. Every theme, imagery, story, that is found in the Bible points to Jesus. He was talked about way before he was born. And this and so many other things are what makes Jesus Christ of Nazareth the most extraordinary person in the history of humanity. And so with this quotation by Jesus Christ, found in um, Psalm 40, the author of Hebrews highlights two important truths. First, God the Father was dissatisfied with the sacrificial system of the law. God the Father was dissatisfied with the sacrificial system of the law. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Verse 6, In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And verse 8 says the same thing. It says, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. And so according to Jesus, via Psalm 40, God was this. God was dissatisfied with the sacrifices required by the law. God was dissatisfied with these sacrifices because they could never take away sins and cleanse those who draw near to him. God the Father may have been dissatisfied with animal sacrifices, but he was fully satisfied with his son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to do his will. And so what was God's will for Jesus? Look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God the Father's will for Jesus was that he would offer his life as a sacrifice and Jesus willingly obeyed God the Father by becoming obedient to the point of the even death on a cross. He willingly laid down his life for the benefit 
of others. David Guzik says this, Jesus' submission to God the Father's will had its ultimate fulfillment in his obedience to the cross. This desire to do God's will um, was shown in the Garden of Gethsemane and fulfilled at the cross. While the law's sacrificial system was insufficient, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient. It's sufficient to give us access into God's presence and make us acceptable in his sight. That's why verse 10 mentions that we have been sanctified as a result of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. Right, And the word sanctifies there is in the perfect tense. It's talking about our salvation. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death, we have been saved. We have been given access to God whenever, wherever we want. And we have been made acceptable in his sight. And if that doesn't move you, pray that it does. Cry out to God this week that these truths would move you. And change the way you live. Animal sacrifices could never solve the sin issue that had destroyed our relationship with God. But the once for all sacrifice of Jesus was enough to give us unlimited access into the presence of the living God and make us acceptable in his sight. Tim Keller says this, the essence of the atonement is always Jesus acting as our substitute. Jesus fights the powers, pays the price, bears the exile, makes the sacrifice, and bears the punishment for us in our place on our behalf. In every grammar, Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He accomplishes salvation. We do nothing at all, and therefore the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus is at the heart of everything. By way of reminder, Hebrews was written to first century Jews who had converted from Judaism to Christianity. And after encountering Jesus Christ, many of these new believers, um, their lives had changed. Jesus Christ was no longer just a prophet, but the Christ, the Son of the living God. However, as they did their best to live out their newfound faith, they were at times prone um, to relate to God in the same way they related to him before they were Christians. In a way, they were kind of mixing um, their newfound faith, Christianity, with their previous religion. They were adopting or importing some of the lifestyles, some of the ways they related to God in Judaism, and they were bringing them into Christianity. 
And so in this section, the author of Hebrews wants them to avoid this pitfall. And so in this session, he wants them to realize that the sacrificial system, which was God's idea, was never meant to be the ultimate way God would fully restore them back to himself. And so he wants them to see that the purpose of animal sacrifices, which some of them were very prone to like saying, man, maybe the sacrificial system was a good thing and it's still um, very much applicable now and we can use it as a way of getting, like the author wants them to see that, no, like um, the whole sacrificial system and everything that was about it, yes, God had instituted it, but it was for that time. But now Jesus has come, and you don't need to keep making sacrifices. He has sacrificed himself once for all, and that is enough for you to access God's presence and be acceptable in his sight. He wants them to see that religious practices are not what makes them right before a holy God. Times have changed, but humans have not. Okay, several years back, I was applying for one of my visas, okay? And I'm... You know, I it, we didn't have a lot of money for a good attorney, and so we got somehow got connected to a really good attorney, really good attorney, and he was incredibly expensive. But what he said, um, as we kind of shared our case and what we do and what we want to do, and I said I'm a pastor and I'm trying to like get a visa here, he was like, "Do you know what? Do you know what? I'm not going to charge you, okay? I'm going to provide my services for you for free." And I said, "Why?" And this freaked me out. He sent this via email. He said, look, Obed, I've done a lot of really, really bad things in my life. And I just feel like helping you will help me feel better. I was like, what have you done? (laughs) It was weird. And so we laugh at this kind of thinking, but listen to this. This kind of thinking doesn't just exist in our culture, but as modern-day Christians, we have the same tendencies. Let me explain. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only reason we can fully be accepted and unconditionally loved by the Son of God, okay? We know this, okay? We know this. But what we like to do is think that we have a part to play. We have to make some sort of sacrifices in order to gain God's love. And so the question I want to ask you is, what sacrifices are you looking to other than the sacrifice of Jesus to make you fully accepted by God and unconditionally loved by him? 
What sacrifices are you relying on to do for you what Jesus has already done for you? Is it Bible reading? Is it daily prayer? Is it serving in a local church? Is it giving your time? Is it giving your finances? What are you looking to or relying on to gain God's love and favor and acceptance? You can make all the sacrifices you want, but they will never be enough to make God love you more. And the reason why is it's already been done for you. Jesus has done it. It is finished. His life lived for you. His body, life laid down for you is enough. It really is. And so let's stop trying to gain God's love by what we do. Bible reading, prayer, all of those things, right? They, are, they, are, they should be expressions of what we already have in God. They should be an outflow, like a response of gratitude of God. I want to love you because you first have loved me. And so what sacrifices do you tend to look to in order to make God love you more? Whatever they are, these passages remind you knew that no, they are not enough. And they will never be enough because Christ is enough. And everything he's done for you is what makes God love you and accept you. For all of us, death is the final chapter of our lives. But the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not the final chapter in his life. Legit historical evidence doesn't only point to the death of Jesus, but it also points to his resurrection from the dead. And so what happened after Jesus' resurrection? And this is a question we will conclude with. And so we've looked at the problem of sacrifices. We've also looked at the solution to the problem of sacrifices. Third, we will look at how the solution to the problem of sacrifices benefit us. So as we've seen, Jesus is a solution to the problem of sacrifices. And so apart from Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, that makes us fully accepted by God. And what are some of the other benefits? In verses 11 to 14, the author of Hebrews, what he does is he highlights several differences between the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, he looks at how um, the priests would stand 
um, as they offer these sacrifices, but Jesus has offered his sacrifices and he's now seated at God's right hand. Um, he looks at how under the law, multiple sacrifices were offered again and again, but Jesus' sacrifice involved just one sacrifice. And lastly, um, the sacrifices the law demanded, regardless of how many times they were offered, were never enough to take away sins, but Christ's sacrifice has established, accomplished that feat for those whom the sacrifice was offered. So look at verse 15 and 16. It says, um, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This quotation is from the book of Jeremiah. Okay, and it reveals that the new covenant comes with the promise that God's law will no longer be external, written on tablets of stone, but will be written on the hearts and minds of his people. And this truth is comforting because it's not, what it's basically saying is that um, we're not just told how to live, but we're empowered by God's spirit to live it out. The second benefit of Jesus' sufficient sacrifice is found in verses 17 and 18. This is what we're going to conclude with, and it's so powerful. Um, let's read verse 17 and Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Uh, in essence, this is saying that there is no need for animal sacrifices because there is forgiveness in what Christ has done. What Jesus has done in dying as a sacrifice for us is the reason we are forgiven. It's the reason verse 17 says God will remember our sins no more. You guys have heard that before, haven't you? Right? God will remember our sins no more. It's not just here, but it's in several places. And I bet that some of you have read that and went, this is too good to be true. This doesn't make sense. Okay? This statement presents a problem. This is why. Because the Bible describes God as being omniscient. Okay? Like, being omniscient means he's all-knowing. He knows everything, okay? And so if God knows everything, how does he forget our sins? How could a God who knows everything be unaware of my past sins and your sins? This question is important. It's really difficult. I wish we had a ton of time to like unpack it and really break it down. But here's the short answer. I will remember their sins no more doesn't mean that God has forgotten our sin. One author says it this way. God's season to remember our sins is not voluntary amnesia. But what it does mean for God to not remember our sins is that he does not hold it against us. In his mercy, he chooses to relate to us as if we've never sinned. And if you make the connection 
with sacrifices, Jesus' once-for-all sacrifices. It all makes sense. All makes sense. And I know you're thinking, as you hear, like, God will never remember your sins. You are thinking, this is too good to be true. It's, it's incredibly hard. And the reason I think we have a hard time believing that God has completely forgiven us is because we think of him like we think of ourselves. Okay, let me explain. One author said it. We project ourselves on him and think he does things the way we do things. We think if something is hard for us, it must be hard for God. And so if we relate this to forgiveness, we have a hard time believing God truly forgives and remembers our sins no more. Because if it's hard for us, it must be hard for him. As I was reading and studying this passage, it took me back, like rewind. I'm nearly 40. Thank you. <laughs> and I started to really remember so many times when I severely sinned. And I said and did things that were hurtful for the people that are around me. I know as I speak, you two are thinking and being reminded of just how sinful you have been. And as I was reflecting on my life and just being reminded the many times in which I have failed miserably, I was comforted by the fact that God chooses to not remember my sins. Let me explain to you. I am a people pleaser. Okay? That's why I'm a public speaker. <laughs> Got issues. And because I'm a people pleaser, I've lived life in a way where the opinions of people matter to me in an unhealthy way. And as a result... When it comes to the idea of confession, when it comes to the idea of making known my sins and um, 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 uh, feeling kind of the relief of my sins, I've always relied on the forgiveness of people. Uh, and yes, there are times when I've had to ask for forgiveness of people, but I've always struggled greatly when people have not forgiven me. Or they've said they've forgiven me, but brought it up again, okay? I've always struggled with that. And the reason why I struggled with that, as I was studying this and as I've been reflecting on this, I realized that, look, the opinions of others 
seems to matter more than the opinion of God in my life. And this passage is reminding me that God's opinion is what should matter most. And if God's opinion matters most to me, yes, I have sinned and I have done things and said things that I shouldn't have. But if someone's struggling to forgive me, I shouldn't allow that to completely determine how I feel because God's opinion should matter more. And according to God, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, he forgives me and chooses and says, Obed, I'm not going to remember your sins no more. In other words, I'm not going to treat you as if you are a sinner. Joanna Kembrell says this, We do not serve a God whose memory is erased at the sound of human confession. Instead, we serve a God who sees the sin that hides in the darkened corners of our hearts as bright as midday, yet who chooses to offer us mercy in Christ. We serve a Savior who knows us fully and still loves us deeply, even to the point of death. We have a far greater hope than a God who forgets. Our hope is a God who forgives. And so King's Cross Church, may we quit trying to gain God's love through religious activities and may we look to Christ and fix our eyes on him because he has done it all And our role is to receive the gift of grace and the gift of love God provides. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. As we sing, may we praise you as we behold you. As we've sung before, our sins are many, but your mercy is more. And the reason for that is Jesus' sacrificial death was enough to pay the debt that we owed because of our sins. And he has done it. It is finished. We now have access into your presence. And we are accepted by you. In his name we pray. Amen.